The River Thames, a blue vein running through England and emptying into the North Sea, cuts through London in a magnificent marriage of metropolis and Mother Nature. Back in the mid-19th century, the river was the convenient dumping ground for just about anything. Slaughterhouse outfall, industrial refuse, and, most notably, human waste. In July 1858, a summer heat wave in London reached a pinnacle. The heat exacerbated the already pungent smell, and day after day, the slow cook of the River Thames perfumed London with an odor that would make a day three porta potty at Coachella seem like a sophisticated powder room. The stench was so bad, it permeated history as the most epic of all smells. The Great Stink. But it wasn't just a nuisance. It was deadly. Londoners had begun to connect the dots of polluted water like this and cholera epidemics that had plagued the city three times in the last two decades. Smelly River Thames almost caused Parliament to move to Oxford. In one incident, the Queen opted out of a boat ride on the river out of sheer repulsion. My, what is that terrible smell? Back to the castle? And so what did the people in power in London do? They fixed the problem. Proposals to address the problem had come and gone over the years, failing to secure the necessary funding. But the great stink changed everything. The problem had become inescapable, and the pressure was enough for Parliament to take action. A massive, decade-long project of remarkable civil engineering revolutionized waste management, giving way to London's sewer system as we know it. This week, we asked ourselves, how are today's cities being reimagined? As the threat of climate change continues to reveal itself, What does it mean for cities to be truly sustainable? What does human-centered design really mean, and how far are our cities from actually reflecting those ideas? Is the COVID-19 pandemic the thing that will spark new urgent changes to cities? Is this our great stink? My name is Scott Herms. This is Working Better. Now, pretend 50 years from today, a podcast or virtual experience or matrix-type information upload exists. Let's call it Better Working. And some mildly amusing, but also somewhat knowledgeable podcasters are telling you about how cities used to be in 2020. It might sound something like, The COVID pandemic suddenly pushed an unprecedented volume of adults working from home and children learning from home, requiring a reliance on virtual network infrastructure that previously hadn't been necessary. Or how about, Believe it or not, cities used to be called concrete jungles because of their lack of green space. Miles of urban areas without a tree, park, or rooftop garden. Or maybe Personally, that last one can't come soon enough. By 2050, the human population will likely be north of 9 billion, with 68% living in cities, according to a recent UN estimate. The question of global sustainability shifts from responsible to essential. So what will spur us into action? What's creating the new sense of urgency about improving the cities we live in? I think for many things, nobody cares until it's knocking on their front door for for virtually everything. Dr. Jeremy Hoffman is the chief scientist at the Science Museum of Virginia and a professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. On his website, Jeremy is described as a data-driven Earth scientist connecting people to our planet. 
His work has been published in outlets including the New York Times, National Geographic, NPR, and more. Climate scientists have a well-documented historical struggle getting the general public to grasp the immediacy of climate change. A great deal of Jeremy's recent work has centered around an issue that he hopes can help make that leap, from theoretical to very tangible. It's called the urban heat island effect. Jeremy explains. The urban heat island effect basically is explained by the dominance of those human built environments in our urban areas that because of their color and their density and the material that they're made out of, they actually absorb more of the sun's energy throughout the day and then re-emit it back into the air as heat throughout the afternoon and into the evening. Urban heat islands are formed by things like giant asphalt parking lots or black metal buildings that attract more of the sun's energy. Compare those to neighborhoods with substantial green space, tree-lined streets, parks, even rooftop gardens, and the difference in temperature can be drastic. Neighborhoods, even just two to three miles apart, can be 10 to 20 degrees warmer at the same minute of the same day simply because of how the neighborhood was designed. It's like wearing a black baseball hat at a Cubs game in a July heat wave, but instead of the hat being made of cotton, it's made of metal, and instead of a hot dog, you're holding a small space heater against your face. In one talk, Jeremy described these types of heat as the days where it feels like you're walking around in someone else's mouth. Delightful. This type of heat isn't just sweat through your shirt uncomfortable. It can be extraordinarily dangerous. The thing that surprised me the most when I started like learning about extreme heat was just how deadly it was in the fact that it's the deadliest weather-related hazard in the last few decades in America, you know, even more so than like the really charismatic storms like hurricanes and tornadoes and floods. Because you hear about those things on the news. You don't hear about this silent killer, you know, realistically speaking, um, that heat is. Climate science clearly shows that we should expect heat waves like this to occur more frequently which means those areas, those heat islands, the parking lots, the giant paved areas, get hit the hardest, causing all sorts of dangers for people that live there, often beyond the obvious things like heat strokes. Heat also exacerbates like virtually all other underlying conditions that someone could have. It's most acutely the, the ones that are about respiratory systems. So people with asthma, COPD, any sort of like respiratory illness, it has that airflow system, their lungs and everything that are further constricted by hot, humid temperatures. And what neighborhoods are more likely to have more paved surfaces and less trees and green spaces? Surprise! Lower income neighborhoods, often the predominantly black neighborhoods, divested since the redlining practices in the U.S. during the 1930s and 40s. Some of our research um, and a lot of research going on around the idea of redlining or the historical practice of basically denying wholesale um, entire communities of people based on the color of their skin, you know, their access to financial resources. And I think that's really like the craziest thing for, I think, some people that might be hearing about this for the first time is the idea that your zip code does a lot more to tell me how long you're going to live than a lot of other aspects of your lifestyle. <laughs> that is crazy. In lower income neighborhoods, residents are more likely to rely on public transportation, more likely not to have air conditioning, and more likely to suffer from existing health conditions that Jeremy described earlier. So as heat waves happen more often, those heat islands reach dangerous temperatures, affecting people already without the means to adapt. Jeremy is from the northwest suburbs of Chicago. In 1995, Chicago experienced an historic heat wave. 
Jeremy's memory of that summer, even as a young kid, has become a useful reminder of how his privilege helped him avoid climate-related hazards. We had like a yard party. <laughs> we were like so thrilled. It was like the hot weather was like, all right, excuse to like get out the, the barbecue and the slip and slide and the bomb pops and stuff. And across town, you know, there were dozens and dozens of elderly black people just dying in their homes by themselves. The book that was written about it, Heat Wave by Eric Kleinenberg, goes into the media portrayal of that situation. And the idea that when we talk about these weather-related disasters, we don't dive into the precariousness of the situation before that disaster occurred. And so the fact that the heat wave was befalling um, predominantly black elderly communities in Southwestern and Western side of Chicago was not really widely talked about when the event was going on. The urban heat island effect, great example of just how layered, layered climate issues are. People are not all equipped to adapt in the same way. And when we look at design decisions like neighborhoods with miles of asphalt and minimal tree cover, it's clear the deck was already stacked against certain groups of people. As Jeremy says, It really is this kind of like Russian nesting dolls of climate resilience. So what do solutions look like? The good news is, Jeremy says, the data is telling such a clear story that there's already plenty of things we could do now to help mitigate the impact of the urban heat island effect, as in now. Small scale interventions like bus stop shade structures or any sort of you know passive cooling uh, system like that, shading pedestrian corridors, you know, green alleyways. Those are sorts of things that take very little investment necessarily compared to some of the other bigger scale things. It's all part of an effort Jeremy calls throwing shade in RVA, including work with an organization called Groundwork RVA that works with youth in Richmond, Virginia, thus the RVA, to take a hands-on approach to enhancing green space in the city. And then there's really like the long-term 20-year horizon kinds of things like tree canopy planting campaigns. Here in Richmond, we're giving away 10,000 trees over the next few weeks. But realistically, to like change our urban canopy percentage, we need like 100 times that, you know, or more over the next few decades to really make an impact on, on our urban canopy. There's also then on the flip side of planting new trees is protecting the big ones. It turns out that we get a lot more bang for our buck maintaining the largest and sturdiest and healthiest trees. I can see it now. Cities with downtown skyscrapers outlined in bushy green hats from the abundant rooftop gardens, sidewalks painted all different colors and bordered with native plants and trees, alleyways that serve as both community gathering spots and bike paths, large trees between streetlights and mid-rises, urban tree canopies and parks around every corner, all-you-can-drink slushies all day long. That doesn't sound too bad. Jeremy also talks about even seemingly small design decisions make a tremendous difference, like designing taller buildings on the southern side of the streets that run east-west. The buildings cast more shade on the streets below, helping to cool streets during heat waves. In talking through the myriads of solutions to both climate change and specifically the urban heat island effect, Jeremy underscored that there never will be any single solution to these problems. There's no silver bullet, it's a silver buckshot. Silver buckshot also being effective when attacked by a gang of werewolves. 
He envisions a community-oriented approach, one that gives people pride, ownership, and opportunity in creating more green space in their communities. That feeling of stewardship and wanting to safeguard something. And if your voice and your community's history is being reflected back by the placemaking that's going on, you're going to be more willing to take care of it and to really like marshal your community resources around it. So it's really something that the urban planning community is really starting to come around to much more publicly than before. Well, it's hard to call it a silver lining. Jeremy did say the pandemic does magnify the importance of parks and green spaces, even if immediately for more selfish, I have nowhere else to go reasons. I'm thrilled that people are starting to see parks and open spaces and green spaces with a new, we need this, I want this in my life. We need to, if I don't have that space in my living area, how do I move closer to a park? Why are parks really important? Well, they're like they're they're virtually like a climate change sponge. They work to absorb stormwater, so it's not only heat that's getting more intense, but also our like rainiest rain events are becoming. They add a couple more buckets of water to each you know rain event, and so parks can be used as a infrastructural investment for our sewer systems. When we think about human-centered design, the impact of urban design choices on our mental health is unavoidable. Of course, designing for sustainability should be focused on our viability in the future, but let's not ignore our sanity and our overall wellness in the present. In short, nature keeps us sane and we shouldn't get too far from it. Today, cities are starting to use happiness framework to look at policies, neighborhoods, and communities to create places that help us all flourish and thrive. That's Paulina Lees, a former executive director of the San Diego Green Building Council and current program manager for C40 Cities. Paula led a Green Alley project in Los Angeles, where the city was looking at converting 250 acres into green alleys. Paulina describes why. In most cities, alleys are one of the most underutilized places. They lack lighting infrastructure, stormwater or any paving infrastructure, and offers serve as a perfect feeding ground from crime and environmental degradation. Through community workshops, interviews, and surveys, the city sourced ideas directly from citizens about how to reimagine alley spaces. Pairing those ideas with environmental research yielded extraordinary new ideas, many of which have been implemented in San Diego. Ideas included closing alleys completely to car traffic, creating permeable spaces that help manage stormwater, creating spaces for kids to play safely and adding native plants. This whole project covers 18 square miles and touches upon 350,000 residents. It is designed to work as a network and work in sync with bike lanes, sidewalks, and streets to create connectivity in the neighborhood, encourage people to walk or bike more, and get them out of the cars. Paulina emphasizes the absolute necessity of community involvement and also that creativity is paramount to reimagining spaces that help us reach a greater sense of balance. So close your eyes for a moment, take a deep breath in, and imagine taking your blissful morning yoga class in a wastewater treatment facility plant. She shows her audience a picture of a few people doing yoga. The room has massive windows overlooking a green field with a tree canopy in the horizon. Sunlight drenches the room, and contrary to your expectation of a wastewater treatment facility, it's the Pinterest perfect vision of Zen. 
And this is a real place. The Omega Center for Sustainable Living in Rhinebeck, New York is a gorgeous facility that I would happily live at, host a luncheon at, take a yoga class at, renew my wedding vows at, or hunker down and wait out for the zombies to die at. I would pay an admission fee to go here, and yet again, its primary purpose is to process and clean the filthiest water a city has to offer. Impressively, the city treats water for 119 surrounding facilities, from toilets, showers, and sinks. The building is surrounded with green space and inside inspired by the natural environment. Paulina bridges environmental sustainability with the mental health benefits of facilities like this. The Omega Center is a perfect example of a building that creates restorative value to both people inside as well as the earth. We all shape our built environment and in return, it shapes us. So let's use this opportunity to create happier lives in happier cities for everybody. Amen, Paulina. In 19th century London, cholera catalyzed London towards new infrastructure. Disease dictated design. Will the COVID-19 pandemic have a similar impact? Yes. Our apologies, we tried, but we couldn't avoid talking about the leading candidate for 2020's biggest stink. This episode of Working Better is brought to you by COVID-19. COVID-19, God's way of showing you that you really don't want to watch that much Netflix from now on. Regardless of when we find a solution to this particular pandemic, the fact remains that contagious diseases will be the threat of the future. So are our living spaces suited for these future threats? Michael Schmidt, a professor of microbiology and immunology, has been working for years to mitigate the risk of hospital-associated infections. His focus is the spread of harmful disease. And we touch about up to 30 objects a minute. And medicine has taught us that over 80% of the infectious diseases are transferred by touch. Just as an experiment, I track this randomly a couple of times a day. In any given minute, I would touch my computer, cell phone, water cup, coffee mug, beard, beard braids, Headphones, cell phone, peanut butter cookie, face, dog, keys, wedding ring, earring, belly button ring. Professor Schmidt wasn't exaggerating. Throughout the day, we are touching so many things. While it really paints the picture of just how much every surface is a microbial cesspool, he quickly offers a possible solution to these highly transmittable surfaces, one that we've actually known for some time. In about 2600 BC, humans appreciated the fact that copper had this tremendous antimicrobial He has been advocating the use bacteria. of copper long before COVID, particularly in hospital rooms. But now an antimicrobial surface would be beneficial in all public spaces, not just hospital rooms. Professor Schmidt explains that when a bacterium or a virus seems to land on the surface, it dies simply because of the inherent quantum mechanical properties of the metal itself. In the past, his work in preventing more hospital-associated infections inspired him to work with manufacturers to create copper handles, hospital railings, and fixtures. Small steps to help mitigate a lot of risk in spreading disease. A study in 2013 published in the journal Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology showed that using copper alloy-based surfaces reduced healthcare-acquired infections by 58%. But the benefits of copper don't stop at its antimicrobial properties. It also happens to be one of the most energy-efficient, durable, corrosion-resistant, ductile, electrical-conducting, thermal-conducting, and infinitely recyclable materials. It checks nearly every box. Now just to find some more copper belly button, I mean doorknobs. 
Electric car manufacturing is embracing copper like never before. It's a primary building material of new high-speed train systems and on full display in buildings like the Belvedere Palace in Vienna, the Berlin Cathedral Church in Germany, and even city hall buildings in American cities like Minneapolis and Austin, Texas. The bottom line, the extraordinary benefits of using copper aren't new. But particularly, as the public health benefits get new spotlight in the COVID era, could copper be a favorite new tool of architects and innovators looking to make our cities better equipped for circumstances like these? Only time will tell. So how are cities being reimagined? Urban heat islands are being discovered, cooled, and transformed into community-driven green spaces. Alleys and wastewater treatment facilities are becoming places of renewal and escape. And copper is presenting itself as an indispensable building block of the future. Two things at the core of each of these stories. One, designing for humans by humans. Community engagement and multidisciplinary thinking is absolutely essential. In London, the Great Stink catalyzed one of the biggest breakthroughs in public health technology in human history. But it also took decades and a team of architects, designers, builders, and government leaders to complete. Without a doubt, solving today's urban challenges will require the same type of collaboration. And number two, data. We can't fix what we don't understand, and we can't understand what we can't measure. Just about every business on the planet is looking for more of it. In the case of cities, how do we see the unseen? How can we collect the type of at-the-source data that Jeremy and his team drove around and measured manually to uncover heat islands? How can we get our roads, rooftops, sidewalks, and streetlights to talk back to us? That is, without microdosing on LSD. To dig more into this, we sat down with Chris Weiland, Technical Director and Director of Kinnancardo America's Labs. We like to think of Chris as a friend of the show. He's also sort of our resident Internet of Things connected world, how do I get my refrigerator to talk to my lawnmower expert. Here's the conversation we had with Chris. There's a perspective out there with that, which I think I subscribe to that. It, it's hard to affect change until you understand the problem. And one of the ways to better understand the problem is to, you know, collect data around it. And one of the ways you can collect data, you know, from the environment, the physical environment is through using technologies like the Internet of Things, instrumenting the world with sensors that can report data from measurable aspects of the world, bring all that data together, collected even real time, combine data from, from various sensors, you know, say in a city together, and then sort of the aggregation, the combination of that data can be used to tell a story, to learn about how the world works. And then your data is right, and your modeling is right, even make predictions about future change and then ways to, to address, address that change, whether it affects positive change or to mitigate negative change. I don't know if you're familiar with Alphabet, Google's parent company. They have a thing called like Sidewalk Labs, which they're sort of dealing with the smart city and they had tried to roll it out in Toronto, but had to shut it down due to people were con had privacy concerns. And I think also, you know, just concerns that it was a company, you know, a for-profit company, you know, running it and using that data in sort of nefarious ways. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I, I was. I was, um, I was interested when they launched that in Toronto, you know, having been working in kind of the IoT space for a while, the physical computing space, those problems kind of popped first to mind. And it's, it's not necessarily that those problems have to happen, but the perception attached to collecting data sparks concern in people's minds. You know, who's collecting it? Who owns it? How's it going to be used? How's it going to be monetized? Because in a sense, we as people are digitized by these sensors in some way. 
It could be I walked by a motion sensor and it detected that someone passed by. It could be a computer vision face recognition that actually can know exactly who I am and then link together with the vast data stores that are on the internet about me already. And that puts this specific person with these specific interests at this specific location at this specific time. And so the potential for, I guess, abuse or at least the legitimization of concern is there and it should be. It doesn't mean that it has to be that way. It doesn't have to be invasive. This data can be used in many different ways for many different purposes. So it becomes almost down to an element of trust. You know, is, is it my city government? Are they partnering with corporations? Do I trust my city government? Do I trust the corporations? Is there, is there transparency to let me inspect and have confidence in what's happening to the data and, and my you know, sort of role in collecting it and my, my data actually being in the data set? A side parallel to that is how many people are civically engaged enough to even want to do that? It's right. just easier to say, no, no, no data collection. You're stealing my privacy and I just walk away. And versus, you know, a little bit more introspection may actually, and some more transparency may open the door to actually build some trust and confidence because this, this kind of technology can really help if it's used, you know, I should say the right way. Uh, of course, right up for debate. And, and I guess, do you know of anybody either like privately or publicly who you think is doing this well of gathering data in responsible and anonymized way? To, to drive, you know, useful outcomes? In Chicago, there was slash is a project called the Array of Things. It was really kind of to the fore in 2017, 2018. In fact, uh, at Kinden Carter, we even had a hackathon at which, you know, we were trying to use smart city data to understand our world and, you know, sort of portray, paint a picture of it. And I think we used, uh, we used wind direction related to um, a local chocolate factory to try to predict where that chocolate smell would end up. It's kind of a thing <laughs> in Chicago. Um, where the Glomer Chocolate Factory, which is right next to the Metro train, um, depending on which way the wind was blowing, you would be just inundated with this awesome chocolate smell. So yeah. we thought, you know, how could we predict uh, where, that, where that cloud is going to go based on, you know, real-time wind direction? So the Ray of Things was, a, was, you know, a partnership, I think, with um, Argonne Labs here in Illinois and the city of Chicago. The sensors they had deployed were mostly, and I should say had deployed, they are still deployed. They're still generating data right now. Um, and that project has taken a slight turn in present day, but it was, you know, temperature, uh, ground vibration. For example, you could detect if a garbage truck was going by based on how the ground vibrated. Chemical pollutants, sunlight, that sort of mm. thing. That data, I mean, it, it's, it's harder to argue that my personal information is being digitized and captured if we're, we're detecting temperature on a light pole that's 20 feet in the air. But then discussion then went around towards, all right, we have these sensors in place. There's a lot more information we could, we could learn by deploying new sensors. For example, you could use computer vision to detect crowd size. What are the traffic patterns, both vehicular and, and personal, in a neighborhood or at an intersection? And that's really powerful information if you're trying to understand how your city's being used and how it can you know, facilitate that use. But now you've brought computer vision into the equation. Now what are they doing with the images? Are they picking individual people out? Who gets to see the images? Again, computer vision isn't inherently bad, but it could be used uh, you know, in a bunch of different ways that may not be appealing to some or many or most people. What are some of your thoughts around, you know, the, the coming issues of urbanization? I think we were mainly looking at sort of disease spread, uh, heat. Um, I think you brought up one, though, it's like, you know, traffic. Is there a way to, to make it? What, what data would you like to collect, you know, if, if you were in charge of the array of things and data privacy was somehow, you know, you're able to, everyone's like, oh, we trust Chris. <laughs> Oh, wow, they trust me. That's, that's 
Well, that's a, it's, it's, it's a, I'm not saying it's a great idea, but I'm just saying, let's say they did. Let's say we fooled, we fooled, we fooled them somehow. We're like, he looks relatively benign. Somehow I've earned their trust through passing. <laughs> you saved a baby somehow. You rescued a puppy from a well and they're like, he's, he's all right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's just, you know, in, in a city, there's just so much data you could collect, you know, for the, uh, the urban heat issue, you know, that sounds, and again, not an expert, that sounds like something that could be relatively easily instrumented and measured if it's sort of a lack of data that's driving the difficulty or the hurdle of trying to solve it, deploying, you know, more sensors, different kinds of sensors, integrating them together, collecting a lot of data, even using machine learning on the data to identify, you know, trends and patterns. You know, as sensor costs go down, as connectivity in the city goes up, coming technologies like 5G, like very high speed, very high bandwidth networking, lower power devices, those are all coming together and becoming more and more affordable and more, more and more scalable. You know, that said, you have one of the biggest challenges of uh, Internet of Things implementations is that, you know, there is sort of a physical plant involved. It's not pure software. Each sensor has to have power. It has to have a location to be attached to. It has to be maintained. It has to be secure. It has to be protected from threats, environmental, uh, you know, vandalism. They have to be located in effective places, you know, who owns the property or whatever that they're attached to. So in my experience, that's one of the hidden aspects of IoT implementations that people kind of gloss over. Yeah, like you don't want to create a botnet army out there for somebody to, <laughs> to launch an attack. You, no, one, no one would trust you again, Chris. Right. I mean, there's the sense that, you know, the, the more data points you have, especially in context, you know, the better, the better you can learn about a, a sensed environment, which is true. So if you're talking about urban heat islands and your assumption is that the massive amounts of concrete, you know, sun reflectivity, it's absorbing and radiating heat versus you know, in suburbs where there's more green space, how many sensors do you need to deploy in a city or a section of a city and, and where are they best deployed and can you deploy them? It's a challenge. It's becoming less costly of a challenge. But then I think you still have that hurdle of the sort of privacy issue, yeah. which again, arguing over ambient temperature sensing versus, you know, computer vision, face recognition, they're kind of two different stories, but they, they seem to be perceived under the same umbrella. Is it worthwhile in this context to talk about the concept of digital twin? Is that a, uh, a valid analogy in this area or does it have nothing to do with it? I think it does. It's funny because terms like, you know, the Internet of Things, big data, AI, digital twin, they kind of came out with a very specific meaning. And then, you know, that meaning has been blurred a bit because they are such umbrella terms. And you can kind of define them the way you want to uh, you know, get your message out there. But basically, a digital twin, it's a, you know, a digital virtual replica of an entity out in the world. And that entity could be almost anything. For example, the weather. If you think about, you know, in your home, you might have a, you know, a Nest thermostat or an Ecobee. Old school perspective is you used to have a thermostat on the wall, right? And it would kind of yeah. tell you what temperature it was, quote, in your house, but it was really just the room. That data was completely localized to that thermostat right there in your wall. Fast forward to today where I have an Ecobee that in one sense does exactly that. It tells me the temperature basically in that room and I can change the temperature higher or lower. But it's also connected to a cloud service that takes input from other data sources like my local weather, like forecasting, and saves data from past measurements of both inside my house as well as you know, the environment outside through these weather feeds and can do both energy and consumption analysis and prediction and recommendation, and actually then control the temperature in my house to fit an optimized model. And so, you know, you can say, you know, I have a digital twin of at least a slice of my house right now, because it is a virtual representation of the state of my condominium. 
Now, true, it's only temperature right now. Right. But you could imagine instrumenting my condo with different other sensors, and you would actually now have a picture of the state of my condo in digital form. It's almost like sitting on top of the Internet of Things and sort of abstracting it a little bit, where I think of Internet of Things as more of that sensor, and then you know, it's transmitting data out for use in a network capacity. Digital twin is, I think, you know, a slightly higher level concept. It can apply to processes, people, places, systems, and devices as well. I would love to see a smart thermostat integrated with my heating and cooling, my smart HVAC, so that it would know the sun's coming around on this room right now. So I don't need any more heat here. In fact, it's going to get too hot here. And then the other rooms will remain too cold, right? So so if I had sensors and a system to do targeted delivery, you and I could also work in the same office together if I liked it hot and you liked it cold, right? Like I just have to have an individual vent that sits above me that I can target. Yeah, that's really cool. I I built this little weather station that would monitor indoor and outdoor temperature and track the sun because Mm -hmm. we have Southern exposure. And for example, it's what, 37 degrees outside right now. We have Southern exposure, it's full sun. And at one point this afternoon, it was 85 in here. And so I had to turn on the air conditioning on November (laughs) 13th or whatever it is. Um, And I almost never have to turn on the heat because, because of that. But it would be nice to be able to, you know, as, as the sun was detected in our, in our family room, which is where most of the glass is, you know, we could crank up some, some AC there, but not the rest of the house or something like that, or pull right. the shades closed. Shades, activate now. Exactly. Yeah, I was reading actually a little bit on um, taking that concept to smart building, which, you know, smart buildings aggregated can be part of a smart city, but in the world of COVID. So could you do that sort of micro environment sensing and tuning in a building for COVID? based on HVAC systems and filtering systems and airflow and what have you. And I think that sort of thing, you know, could be important for uh, commercial real estate owners and developers who are having trouble getting people back into office for obvious reasons. Yeah. Or another, you know, uh, another form of invasion of your privacy, though, not really because you're throwing it away, is uh, at some dorms, they're monitoring the outbound sewage um, and detecting COVID there to know whether or not, you know, they should increase testing or shut down the dorm, right? They don't know who is the offender, but they know somebody in this shared space has been exposed to COVID. Yeah, no, that's another, you know, IoT digital twin sensor. Um, you know, it, it's funny to use, right, viral detection in sewage as, you know, a data point in the digital twin of a city or a part of a city. You know, it's but, part of your model of that city or neighborhood and, uh, you know, sort of infection rate. And that's how yeah. you're measuring it. Yeah, you could, you could tell what people were actually eating. It's, you know, it's much easier to trace the output than the input. Right. <laughs> people go buy the food, but this is one way to tell if they really ate the food. Right. It's like, yeah, in, in, the, in a store, did you, you know, you picked up and looked at the frozen beans, but did you actually buy it? Earlier on, Chris, you talked a little bit about yeah. using data for prediction. So I guess what kind of things do you feel like, you know, if you had this data, you know, how might it, how might it be used in, you know, the smart city of the future? Oh, that's a good question. Prediction in smart cities. One way is to predict trends, right? So, for example, and I'm, again, I'm not an urban scientist, so I might be making this up a bit, but if you've been able to capture through sensors, you know, through the Internet of Things, you know, the, the temperature patterns of a neighborhood or, or even, you know, some square footage of concrete in a city, you could, you know, not only measuring the direct temperature, you can measure the, the weather patterns, um, you know, through weather feeds, you could measure um, sunlight impact and angle and duration, cloud coverage, that sort of thing. Another thing that instrumenting with sensors can do is give you a data-based way of comparing the effectiveness of solutions. Hmm. So, you know, the solution itself might not be digital, but the fact that you can tell what, you know, what impacts any change is having on an environment through digital 
is incredibly valuable. That's true. Um, one, of, one of the examples I heard in, uh, and I think they actually ran this simulation, was to, it was basically part of a conference. They gathered sort of some of the data from the previous year and used it as a way to predict. The concept was like, okay, this conference, uh, when it lets out, you know, there's these break times and then people are at the end are going to go and get in taxis or Ubers, right? And so wouldn't it be nice if we could, you know, sort of let people know that the conference is letting out, therefore we could alert all these, you know, ride shares or in the future, our self-driving cars, or, you know, if you had an automated transportation system, you could queue up more buses and be ready to go to sort of, to meet the need. Uh, so to me, that was a great example of like how you might use that information. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. Just in time ride sharing. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, you know, it's, uh, how much time, you know, or that you know, people get notified that like, hey, there's going to be a surge over here. And then, you know, as pe- as the drivers show up, then you also see like, oh, it's not, I waited 10 minutes too long. There's already enough drivers here. I'm not going to go hang out. I'm going to go somewhere right. else. You just have to make sure that system can't be hacked. Like uh, people hack uh, ways, right? So people in neighborhoods, when people use them, uh, drivers oh, yeah. use certain neighborhoods for shortcuts. So people in ways say, you know, no, there's, you know, there's construction going on here for the next five years. Don't go this way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I like that. But I mean, it's also like yeah, the, the the other thing you can't model is how people's reaction to the the predictions will then affect the predictions, right? So it's like if I see that oh, it's you know uh, I'm I'm an Uber driver and I'm like oh, uh, people are going to need an Uber driver. All the Uber drivers go there, right? And then now you know this it's a it's a it's a log jam because too many people went at the same time, right? And then then you're right. Then you've created the same situation effectively right. no one can get to where they need to go. Yeah. You know, unfortunately I remember uh, I was reading a book about software engineering and it's like talking about why it's so difficult. And it's because, you know, software is written by people for people and people are sort of a first level order of chaos, right. In terms of unpredictability, right. Like it's not, you know, we're not like physics. It's uh, people do crazy and unpredictable things. We act against our own best interest or we act in our perceived interest uh, and cause uh, unpredictable effects. So it's really hard to model systems that include people. And unfortunately, all of our systems include people. Yeah. And I, I think there's, um, it's been my experience, there's generally a, uh, a bias in building software towards treating people as, you know, rational actors or whatever, <laughs> you know, yeah. so, you know, or, or we'll have personas where we have three personas and that like, that's going to represent, you know, the variability <laughs> and first order chaos of, of, of people. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's never a, a, a persona of angry conspiracy theorist person afraid of technology. <laughs> I mean, that's really like, I want to see that persona of like, you know, so like the uh, people who are just don't really want to touch any button where they're not, I don't know what that button's going to do. I'm going to leave it alone. And then you have the, the flip side where I'm going to touch every button. I don't care what it does because I'm going to push it. <laughs> yeah. That's definitely like watching different generations, even in my family interact with technology. It's like, you know, my mom will not uh, touch anything unless she's absolutely certain what it's going to do before she touches it. Um, and then whereas, the, you know, my children are just like, I just see them just go start slamming around a thing until it does what they want. And I'm like, I asked one of my kids one time, like, how did you figure out how to convert this, you know, these files to this different format? And I'm like, I have no idea that there's this processor. I just Googled it and used it. And I'm like, but were you worried that they're going to steal it? And like, nope, it just doesn't matter. They're, you know, I'm just sending this, you know, this data into the cloud. It's going to come back. Okay. Yeah. That's a good point. My mom, my mom is kind of like that with technology. I mean, she could, she could, she could use it pretty well, especially for being someone who didn't grow up with it. But you know, she was definitely like a phone's ringing. Okay. What button are you seeing on the screen that you don't want to click? mom? <laughs> and it probably saved her from being hacked. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, it's not, uh, I don't mean to be, 
condemning people for their unsure behavior. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think it's just, like I said, it's use comfort around technology. If you're digital native, you're sort of used to all of it. And if you're not, you treat it like it's the analog of the thing, right? And pushing a wrong button in the real world often can have unpleasant consequences, right? You know, things physically crash and burn. Whereas on the internet, it's kind of like, eh, who knows what's going to happen. Smart city, Chris, before we wrap up. I, I found it interesting that these the smart city projects seem to have trouble taking off, at least from my perception. Again, I'm not an urban scientist. Um, I just kind of keep an eye on these things. But it's kind of interesting that it seems like, to me, a really useful tool, privacy concerns and implementation concerns aside. But it, it's kind of hard to get you know traction. It's hard to find that use case that makes sense. You know, Maybe it's money. Maybe it's privacy issues. Maybe it's just political will, whatever. But it's interesting that, you know, we go so far in certain areas of technology that would seem like, well, you know, you're going way too far in that. And then like we just hold stop, you know, we stop on things like smart cities. I think smart buildings is really growing pretty rapidly, but smart cities is kind of trailing a bit, I think. I think like, and again, maybe back to, to my original idea of like that people are like, okay, I can choose to go into this building or not, right? But I have to go somewhere outside, right? So if I, I can choose not to go to Panera, if I know that I'm being monitored in there, it's part of the smart city project. And maybe if there's, maybe that's it. It's just like, hey, you're, you know, this, this monitor is nearby and here's the things that it tracks and here's where the data is stored. To your point, like people aren't going to go actively search this stuff out. But if it's like, hey, we, there's an open API, if you want to download this app, you can tell when you're in sensing range. And if you want to avoid it, you can go around it. And if you don't care, you know, then you've opted in. So I think like what, you know, what, what models have we seen where people just either feel it's innocuous or um, are willing to give up some small level of anonymity because they feel that there's some greater good? Right. You know, it, in uh, Kin and Carta Labs, um, we did an experiment with um, computer vision, you know, kind of in a financial context in the branch of the bank where we used computer vision to try to detect not who you are, but your emotions. And um, it was interesting, the conversations. With, one, of the, one of the reasons we did is to spark conversation about that, because as computer vision machine learning becomes more ubiquitous, there's a lot of trust building that's going to have to happen to even deploy these solutions out in the world. Yeah. And so the base reaction to these, to this technology, to this little experiment was, oh, no, you got a camera. You're trying to figure out who I am and monetize my face and therefore my, my digital profile. And that was the gut reaction of almost everyone. And then, you know, we, we try to take the opposite tack of explaining it to say, you know, this, this technology has a, a wide range of things that it can do. And describing what we're doing and building that trust out of that wide range um, is something that's going to, I would think have to be an active task and, you know, maybe until the point where people just don't care. I've heard people, you know, even people we work with, you know, I say, well, don't you care about your privacy? And it's like, no, they know everything about me anyway. They've known it since birth. I don't really care yet. They'll go out and complain about a smart city. Yeah. I'm trying to think like of an analog back to, you know, when the internet first rolled out of, you know, certainly like no one wanted or very few people were going to go do financial transactions, transactions on there. People like, I don't, you know, I'm not going to go put my credit card, on the internet, I might as well just, you know, throw my money out the window. And yet now it's, you know, people think nothing about, uh, you know, sending sums of money to, uh, an, uh, you know, someone's name, right? You know, via Venmo, right? Like, I, geez, I hope this is Bell or, you know, I hope this is Chris, right? I'm going to send this money and hopefully it gets there. If not, it's gone. I can't get that money back. And yet, how did we get into that world, right? Is there, is there any kind of like analogous on-ramp 
for, you know, data collection for, um, you know, helping drive our smart cities. I think, as we talked about before, at least to a certain point, the sensors that could be deployed are not individualizable. I mean, certainly you can deploy sensors like that, but if you have a, you know, a thermocouple embedded in asphalt, I don't see how that's going to hurt my privacy at all. You know, maybe there's some population level dynamic, but at an individual level, it, you know, that thermocouple knows nothing about me and can't know anything about me. Yet, it could report really, really useful data to, um, you know, city environmental scientists. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's that the, you know, the first wave of these sensors are pretty stupid. I mean, or by stupid, I mean that they're actually limited in what they can see and tell us about the world. Uh, but even then, I would still think that you're going to have people who just don't trust it, right? Like, I don't, you know, it's still like, I tell you that all this is doing is getting, you know, uh, even if it's in the ground, it's like, it's just testing, like how many cars run over it and what the daily temperature is in the asphalt. Or if it's up in the air, it's just telling me like wind speed and temperature and, you know, time of day. So I can like start plotting out individual temperatures, right? Like still there'll be a group of people who just don't, uh, don't believe you. The array of things in Chicago, you can, you know, go onto their, their website, look at their APIs. It's completely transparent. Look at the data. It's completely transparent. They have descriptions of the sensors. You can actually, anyone can go download the data and look at what they're sensing and what the values are. Yet the only way you're going to build trust with that approach is if people are interested enough to go look, if, if they're skeptical, the information is there, but if they won't go look and prove it for themselves, then you know, I don't know what the message is. Yeah, I mean, I, I could be skeptical and say that's only the data they're showing me, right? Like, you know, that's only that's only the data they expose in their APIs. There's the secret, you know, black box of data where they're they're capturing, you know, how often I've gone into Krispy Kreme, which is weird because there I don't think there's any Krispy Kremes left in the city, so I don't know how I'm getting there, but I'm finding it. Right, that would be fabricated data. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, you'd have to know how many Krispy Kremes there were, i.e., zero. I think they, I heard they're making a comeback. I think there's one, but uh, yeah. Donuts have their own force. All right. So what are you, what, what do you think is, is next in the world of IoT? Is, is there anything that you're tracking or is it more like the technology? Yeah. I know a big area that I was actually working in a bit in my last job was um, telehealth, telemedicine. So if you have, for example, I think, again, not a doctor, but um, you have a heart patient, you know, had a heart surgery, comes back home. If you can monitor their weight in a consistent basis, you can tell a lot about how their health is panning out, even short term. That's IoT, that's a sensor in the home. But the trick is to A, get it installed, get it maintained and get the person to use it. Um, right. The technology is not an issue at this point at all. And, and the cost is not really that much of an issue. It's, it's, it's installation, maintenance and adoption. I think maybe that smart buildings and smart people are gonna have to happen before people trust a smart city, right? Like, so if I'm willing to sort of, you know, we're already giving up a lot of information as we travel through the world on our phones and, you know, using our devices, what point, and then, you know, and our buildings start instrumenting themselves for that. And that's more voluntary. We're going in. I think it might lend to more adoption of uh, external world where, okay, well now as I walk out in the world, I can choose to be part of a greater mesh uh, and give up my data there, knowing that I've, I've already done it on a, on a micro level. Thanks to Chris for lending his big brain to the podcast. I could talk to him about this stuff for hours. No cooler terms this week, but be sure to tune in next time for something better and cooler than ever before. That's our show. Please check us out on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, aka Business Facebook. We would love to hear from you, hear what you thought about the show, and what we can do better. 
And if you're not on any social media due to privacy concerns, you can always send us a message by tapping on your window in Morse code.